We're going to be looking at a psalm today, and as we've been working through the book of 1 Samuel, and as we've been uh, talking about David and his life and uh, all the things that have been going on with him, we've paused a, a few different times to look at psalms that David had written during that time in his life. And originally, when I was um, picking the topic that I would speak on this morning, I thought, oh, well, I'll pick Psalm 63, because somewhere I had seen it on a list of uh, psalms that David wrote while he was out in the wilderness being chased by Saul. Um, Then I got into studying it a little bit more and found out that um, most likely it's not actually during the time that, that Saul was chasing him around, but it's most likely when his son Absalom had come and uh, led a revolt. And as a result, David was back out in the wilderness running around for his life. And so uh, we get to see this morning a little bit of an interesting perspective because uh, what we've been studying in 1 Samuel is, uh, you know, David and the circumstances that he's in. And what we get to see now is uh, a little bit older, a little bit more mature, a little bit more seasoned David, but back in the same uh, crummy circumstances, running for his life and out in the wilderness. So um, let's go ahead and let's start by reading the psalm. So it's Psalm 63, and I'm going to read it, and then we'll pray, and then we'll, uh, we'll get into it a little bit. So Psalm 63. The title of it is a a Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of the liars will be stopped. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we, uh, we thank you for this opportunity that we have this morning to look at your word Lord, we pray that you would open our, our eyes, open our hearts and our minds to, to hear uh, what David has to, to teach us this morning. Lord, uh, would you work in us through your spirit? Um, help us to see how we can apply the truths of your word. And Lord, uh, we do want to, uh, we want to pray for Pastor Jeff also as he is at the Redemption Bible Church. We hope that that they're having a, a great service, a great time of worshiping you together. Lord, would you uh, speak to that congregation through Pastor Jeff? Would you give him uh, words of, 
of wisdom? Uh, would you help him to, to rightly uh, speak about the, the truth from your word that, that he's um, been working on? And Lord, I, I pray that the same for me, that, that you would, through your spirit, just uh, help me to speak clearly, help me to uh, be able to convey the, the importance of the words that are here. And Lord, we thank you so much for the example that we have of King David uh, thousands of years ago and yet um, so applicable to our lives and to our situation. So Lord, would you uh, work through your word in our hearts and minds now? And Lord, we commit this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So, as I said, uh, this is a, a psalm of David, and, you know, as I was studying and as I was kind of trying to ponder, what is the main message of this psalm, or what is the main takeaway uh, from this psalm? The, the idea kind of came to me, and it's, it's not very original because it's here, but uh, the title of the sermon, I, I said, was Food for the Soul. And there's a, a couple of different metaphors that David uses in the psalm that, that make us think of, of food um, and of hunger and of thirst and then being satisfied. And the question that, that kind of was raised in my mind is, what am I hungry for? And that may sound like a kind of a silly question, and it can be answered in a lot of different ways. If you skipped breakfast, your answer might be, well, I'm hungry for a cheeseburger. That sounds pretty good right now. Or maybe uh, go down to the Mexican restaurant, a good burrito or something. Sound pretty good? Hungry? Yeah, tacos? Okay, there we go. Yeah. Um, you know, we can be hungry for different things. And there is this uh, physical aspect of hunger that we live with every day. And at some times, we're more hungry than at other times. But the interesting thing about that, that physical idea of hunger is that there's, there's a spiritual aspect to it. In just the same way that, that we are hungry for food, we are hungry for different things in our life. And, and we, we aren't satisfied until we get it. So, what are you hungry for? Are you hungry for attention? Are you hungry for money? Are you hungry for relaxation? Are you hungry for the perfect body? Are you hungry for the perfect job? Are you hungry for the perfect wife or husband? What are you hungry for? What do you go after? What drives you? You know, when you are really hungry, which I have to say, I probably in my life have never been really hungry. But when you are really hungry, you'll do incredible things to get that physical appetite filled. Um, one of the more disgusting things that's in the Bible are descriptions of the city of Jerusalem while it's being sieged. After years of 
being sieged. People are so hungry that they're looking around for old shoes, old sandals. They're going to eat them because they're made from leather. And even though it's like leather and there's really no nutritional value, it at least fills their stomach and it's something that won't kill them. Not only that, but Uncle Ed just passed away. So what do we do? We have literally no food and no way to quench our hunger. And so you quench your hunger. You know, and that's kind of a, a disgusting picture of hunger, but it, it's descriptive and I think it's powerful because it, it conveys that, that hunger is a powerful thing. It will drive you to do things that, that you may not even think of that you would ever do, you know? And so that idea of, of what are you hungry for um, is, comes through in this psalm, I think, pretty strongly. And we're going to see what David is truly hungry for, and we're going to see what truly satisfies David. Now again, the, the situation that he's in when he writes this psalm is most likely um, as he is, he's had to flee the city of Jerusalem because his son Absalom has led a revolt. Um, Absalom, you can read the story of his life and all of this in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 14 through 18, but he was the brother of Tamar who uh, Tamar was the, the uh, daughter of David who was raped by Amnon, his other son. And then Absalom got vengeance by killing Amnon. And then Absalom fled because he didn't want to be around because he was, a, he was afraid of what David would do in response to this. So he was gone for a while. Well, after a while, uh, some of David's friends and, uh, and colleagues, they convinced him, hey, you know, you should, you should really let Absalom come back. And David said, yeah, you're right. So uh, he did. And there was forgiveness and there was a, a reestablishment of a relationship. But Absalom did, uh, did something a little bit more than what David expected. Um, Absalom set himself up at the city gates, and whenever anybody would come in to, uh, to air a complaint to the king or something like that, Absalom would get in their ear before the king, and he would say, you know, if I were the king, I would do this. And he would make it sound really good. You know, if you were coming to dispute a matter, like maybe somebody uh, didn't pay you, uh, for some services that were rendered. Well, Absalom would say, you know, if I were king, you would have your money. And that person, they'd be in jail. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? And he would get in the ear of everyone as they were coming through the city gates. And pretty soon, everybody started to think, wow, Absalom's a good guy. You know, I like him. 
And he was able to establish a, a following among the people of Israel, which eventually led to um, a time where he mustered everybody up and they, they led a revolt and David found out about it beforehand and he just said, you know what? I'm getting out of here. So he, he left Jerusalem um, and headed out into the wilderness with his family, with a bunch of his followers and Absalom basically came into Jerusalem and took control of the throne um, and yeah, he was in charge. And David went from having everything as the king to now he is basically on the run for his life. Does that sound familiar? What we're looking at in 1 Samuel is David on the run for his life. And we have King Saul who is chasing after him. And in these circumstances, we had Absalom who is now chasing after him. He wants him dead. He wants him out of the way so that he can fully claim the kingship of Israel. So it's under those circumstances that, uh, that we see David write this psalm. And I know I already read it, but I want to just read it one more time and kind of, you know, think about those circumstances as I read this and, and picture um, David out in the wilderness with nothing, and he writes this psalm. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. You see a little bit more. Hopefully just having that, uh, having that background information gives you a little bit more insight in here. When he talks about thirsting, he's really thirsty. But what is he thirsty for? When he talks about being satisfied, he really desires to be satisfied, but how? Is it physical or is it spiritual? How is that going to come about? When he says that he's under the shadow of, of your wings, well... It kind of doesn't seem like it right now, but yet he declares this to be true. When he talks about the liars, who do you think he's talking about? When he talks about those who want to destroy his life, who do you think he's referring to? You know, there's, there's a reality behind these psalms that sometimes we miss when we just whew, 
read them through. I mean, there's, there's still good, and, and there, you know, I would encourage you to, to read through the Psalms, but there's so much more depth when you, when you look at the circumstances under which these Psalms were written. So let's just kind of work through this um, verse by verse and then come to uh, some conclusions. So the first verse there, O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Now literally, he's in a land where there is no water. He's, he's going through the wilderness and they have very little food and very little water. And so he's very familiar with this idea of hunger and thirst. But the interesting thing here is that he uses those physical appetites, those physical hungers to, to convey uh, a true spiritual need that he realizes he has that is even more important than the physical. What David really needs right now out in the wilderness is God, right? He needs his presence. He needs his sustenance. He needs God's comfort. He needs the strength that comes from a relationship with the Lord. And so he doesn't say, earnestly, I seek my throne back. And he doesn't say, earnestly, I seek a really good steak. But he says, oh God, you are my God. And earnestly, I seek you. He's looking at the bigger picture. Yes, he's just been dethroned. And yes, he's running for his life. But, but what he hungers for is his God. And it's just a little word, but that, that word my is, is a really important word. Because he's not saying, oh God, you are God and you will do what you want. But he's saying, oh God, you are my God. And, and so in the midst of these really terrible things that are going on, he's saying, you know what? God, you're not just some enormous power that's out there that is for some reason doing all these things, but you are mine. You are my God. Even though I've just been dethroned by my own son, even though I'm wandering, I'm claiming you as my own because you have claimed me as your own. You're mine, and we're in this together. You are my God. Spurgeon says this, he has no doubts about his possession of his God, and why should other believers have any? The straightforward, clear language of this opening sentence would be far more becoming in Christians than the timorous and doubtful expressions so usual among professors. Well, that's Spurgeon's language, but basically what he's saying is, you know, sometimes in our troubles, um, we're willing to acknowledge God, but we aren't crying out to him as my God. 
Think of Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the same phrase. You know, in, in tough times, too often we are willing to admit that there is a God and that he's doing something, but we aren't willing to claim him and say, you're mine, and let's go through this together. Sometimes we're even tempted to say, well, I know you're God, but I'm really upset with what you're doing. And if you really were my God, then things would be different. But that's not, that's not what David says here. He says, I see what's going on, and I may not be able to see the end goal here, the end results, but you are mine, and I'm in it with you. And, and there's nowhere else that I'm going to turn. So, God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. That idea of, of David's soul thirsting for God, his flesh fainting if he doesn't have him, that's, the, again, that, that hunger, that thirst, is for, yes, food and water, but more importantly, for God. And then this last phrase, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water, um, there's kind of two, two ways to look at this. David literally is in a dry and weary land, but also, what does a dry and weary land do when water comes? It soaks it up, right? And that's the idea there also is not only is he out in this barren wilderness and he knows the, the, the thirst and the hunger, but when he meets his God, he soaks it up like a sponge, like dry cracked earth when water comes just drinks it up. I'm amazed sometimes, you know, you can put water uh, on the ground and it seems like if it's really dry, like you can just keep pouring the water on, keep pouring it on, keep pouring it on and it just keeps on drinking it and drinking it and drinking it. And there's no, seemingly no end to how much it can take in. And that's the idea here is that um, David's hunger for God, his thirst for God is unquenchable. Verse two, so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. David is uh, reminiscing a little bit and he's saying in verse one, God, I need you. I'm hungry for you. I'm thirsty for you. And in verse two, he's remembering um, his relationship with the Lord in the sanctuary. I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. And, you know, the significance of this is that he's looking back at his time as king. And the thing that is standing out to him as being really significant is his time in worship of the Lord in the sanctuary. It's not the amazing house that he has. It's not the servants. It's not the uh, great battles that he's fought and won. It's not the praise of men. He's looking back and what he's really longing for are those sweet times of worship 
of beholding God's power and glory that he's had in the sanctuary. Again, showing you, you know, where, where is David's true hunger? It's for the Lord. It's for his God. And why? Because, verse 3, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. That phrase there, steadfast love, is an important one in the Old Testament. It's the, it's the same thing that Jonah got really upset with the Lord about. Do you remember Jonah? Prophet um, told to go to Nineveh and decides, eh, I don't like those people. I'm going to go this way instead of that way. Gets swallowed by the fish, gets spit up by the fish. God tells him again, hey, I'm serious. Go to Nineveh. So he goes to Nineveh and he preaches. And what happens? The people repent. There's a revival. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord, right? But where's Jonah? He walks outside the city and he sits down in the dust and he goes, I knew you were going to do this, God. I knew you were going to do this because of your steadfast love. Because you are someone who shows mercy and has compassion on people, no matter who they are. Even these horrible Ninevites who I hate. And so now I'm mad at you because of your steadfast love. And, and you know, the, the question that that book of Jonah ends with is, Jonah shouldn't I be concerned with these people? And the answer is yes, of course. And Jonah should have been concerned with them too. But that idea of, of steadfast love is that God is someone who, who loves people regardless of who they are and what they do. Now, now hear me on this. That's not license to do anything you want. You know, many people will, will take it to that extent and say, well, God is a God of love. He forgives, right? So, so I can do what I want and he'll forgive, right? That sounds really nice, kind of. But it's not right. And the Apostle Paul addresses that. In Romans 6, and he says, so shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound? And please, you feel free to shout it if you want to. What is Paul's answer to that question? Shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? Thank you. May it never be. Because that would be taking advantage of this steadfast love. But what David is doing is he's saying, God, I have experienced your steadfast love in my life, and so my lips are going to praise you. And in fact, your steadfast love is better than life. Like, it's the best thing. There's nothing better. Now, it's important to realize, too, the time that this takes place is after things like Bathsheba. You know, it's after David has been on this roller coaster of 
ups and downs in his life. And he's looking back and he's saying, ah, God, you have shown me steadfast love all my life. And it's the best thing. Literally the best thing in my life is your love. And so my lips are going to praise you, even in the midst of my current circumstances out in the wilderness. Verse 4, I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. The idea here is that he's, he's not going to stop singing the praises of his God because his loving kindness, his steadfast love is amazing. It's the best thing in life. It's what he really hungers for. It's what he thirsts after is seeing God's love displayed in the circumstances of his life. And not only that, but in the current circumstances that David is in, out in the wilderness, being chased by his son, David's still saying, God, you're, you're so loving. You're so amazing. And, and he's looking for that in the midst of these adverse circumstances. Verse 5, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Now what's, what's the result of this hunger that he has? The first four verses have, have presented this idea that, that David is hungry for something. He's thirsty for something. He, he'll faint if he doesn't get it. And we find out that it's, it's actually his relationship with God and seeing his love and, and understanding who he is. And then verse five says, I'm satisfied. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. You guys are probably doing something wrong. I'm guessing. Because... Uh, our culture tends to want to trim all the fat off of our meat. What is up with that? Don't you know that the fat is the good stuff? The fat gives flavor. It gives moisture. Uh, if you have a bite of steak and it's just like all meat, like it tastes good, but then you add a little bit of brown fat to the edge of it, I see that face, Stephanie. You, you got to try it. It's amazing. It takes that good steak and it just poof, through the roof because it's, it's unctuous and it's mm, fatty and it, it's satisfying. We get it wrong. We want it. You go to a butcher shop nowadays and what do you see? You see garbage cans filled with fat. That's the good stuff. You got to keep that on your meat. That's the idea here when he says, my soul will be satisfied with fat and rich food. He's saying that there is this, uh, <laughs> this really good, rich, enjoyable experience that you can have when you bite into a good steak with a good amount of fat on it. Have you ever heard of Wagyu beef? Maybe. It's like the best beef in the world. And it's 
comes from Japan originally, and it's, uh, these cows are put out to pasture, and they're pampered, and they're uh, given the best food. I think they play music for them. They groom them well. Uh, they drink the cows before uh, they go to bed. They get a nice drink of beer to relax them and all this kind of stuff. Like they're, they're pampered, and the result is a steak that has incredible marbling in it. Now, if you're saying, what's marbling? Well, it's fat in between the individual sinews of protein and muscle. And it's prized the world over because it's fat. It's luscious. It is, you take a bite of it and it melts in your mouth. I've never had the pleasure of trying some. I'd like to someday. But that's the idea here. This, this idea of fat, you know, we tend to think of, ew, yucky, fat. But no, it's, oh, yeah, I want that. In Leviticus uh, chapter 3 and chapter 4, there's descriptions of offerings that the people were supposed to be get, uh, giving. And these are different types of animal offerings. And guess what is always given as an offering and never discarded? The fat. They even go through the trouble of, you know, opening the animal up and they grab the fat that's around the liver and around other parts of the body and they offer that as sacrifice. And sometimes they, they take the rest of the animal outside the camp and just burn that because it's worthless. But they offer the fat and the good stuff from the animal. And... When David says here, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, that's the, the idea is that there is a real satisfaction. There's a richness. There is a, a goodness that he is getting. And where is it coming from? Is it coming from his current circumstances? No. He's out in the wilderness. He's running for his life. Is it coming from his, his own power, his own strength? No, he's weak. Where is it coming from? Where is he getting this satisfaction? It's from God. My God. You are satisfying me even in these circumstances. And what's the result? And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Verse 6, when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. David is, is praising the Lord because he has been satisfied with his goodness, and he's remembering this as he's falling asleep. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. Now, an interesting thing here. When it says the watches of the night, it implies this is late at night. Well, what's David doing up late at night? Well, what do you think he's doing up late at night? He's, he's being tempted, like we are, to worry, to fear, and it's keeping him up at night. Remember his circumstances. 
what's he going through? Don't you think you might spend a night or two kind of laying in bed going, what's going on? But what does he do? He turns that what's going on into, Lord, I need to remember you right now. That satisfaction that I have in you, I need that right now. So my lips are now going to praise you because I can't sleep. And I'm tempted to go down the road of worry and fear and all this. But no, that doesn't satisfy. That just leads to more anxiety. So I need to remember who you are. And verse 7, who is God? David says, verse 7, you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. So in the watches of the night, where does David get his satisfaction? He gets his satisfaction from verse 7, remembering how God has been his help. You have been my help, God. And so replay your life. Look at all the good that God has done for you. Yeah, you know, we've all been through hard things. David's been through some real hard things. And yet, how good has God been? You know, that's what we should be focusing on. That's what we should be meditating on when we're up late at night and can't sleep. God, you have been good. You've protected me. That idea of being under his, in the shadow of his wings is God has protected him, has led him through all of this. And so verse 8, my soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. He ends by saying, I've got nothing else. <laughs> I'm clinging to you. Despite what's going on, you're it. You're what satisfies. And then the last several verses just draw a contrast between where David is at and where his enemies are. Those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals, but the king shall rejoice in God. Those who are after him, those who are opposing David, David has the, uh, the sense to look at the big picture. And to say, you know what? This has happened before. I've been opposed before. Those, there have been many people who have uh, come after me for various reasons. And God, you've always taken care of me. You've taken care of me and you've given those people what they deserve. There's a tendency that we have to want to exact vengeance on people when they've wronged us. But what David here is saying is, I'm not going to exact vengeance. I'm going to trust God that you will. And if you ever want to be free, like truly free in your life, this is where you need to be. In the sense of, there's a lot of people that you could say, oh, I'm going to get back at them. They wronged me. I, I got news for you. Even if you come up with a great plan for revenge, it'll only take you deeper. 
into bitterness and anger and all these things. The only way out is to put it in God's hands. Romans 12 says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. So let's let him have it. And, you know, I'm going to continue doing what I know is right. And those who oppose me, God will take care of them. That's basically the, the idea here. And not only is that freeing, but it gives hope. Like, God does care about me. And he's going to do something. So I'm just going to let him. And, and I'm going to enjoy remembering who he is, what he's done for me. I'm going to find my satisfaction in, in my relationship with him and let him take care of what he needs to take care of. And verse 11 says, The king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. And one more time, we just see that things are in God's hands the mouths of liars will be stopped. In this particular situation, how did Absalom come to power? He sat every day at the city gates and he basically lied to people as they came in to get their approval, to get their, their support. And David's saying, you know what? I can't do anything about it. God, it's in your hands. And I'm gonna be satisfied in you. So, you know, we have this, this psalm in really incredible circumstances. And, and I think, you know, we should take from this is number one, what are you looking for in your life for satisfaction? You know, we see here a man, David, who has it right. He's looking to God in every circumstance for satisfaction. And I can tell you, if you look to money, if you look to relationships, if you look to anything other than God for true satisfaction, it will fail. And so David has given us a great example here. In the midst of hard times, turn to God. Remember who he is. Remember what he's done. Seek after him yearn for him, hunger for him. You know, when, when times get tough, our mouths should water for God. And, you know, the second thing that we can see here is that our relationship with God is not affected by circumstances. Or it shouldn't be affected by circumstances. You know, Take David. He could have been really ticked off at God. And his relationship with God could have really gone downhill because of circumstances. He was in the middle of some really hard stuff. And yet, what does he do? He doesn't let his relationship with the Lord flounder. In fact, it, it seems like he longs for it even more, like he's going to put even more energy into his relationship with God and worshiping and, and praising him because he knows that that's the only thing that's really going to satisfy. So, how's your relationship with the Lord? Is it 
up and down? Or is it just like steady, no matter what happens? Because it can be steady. If we are focused on his word, if we are focused on, on prayer and our relationship with the Lord, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. That sounds like a Bible verse. Oh, it is. Ah, Philippians 4.13, what do you know? We can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? That's what that verse means. That's what the psalm is. This is David saying, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And that's what, that's what God would desire for each and every one of us, is to have this relationship with him that brings us through the circumstances of our lives. A relationship with him that we hunger for, that we want, and, and that we're willing to to go after. You know, it's one thing to say, yeah, I want, a, I want a deeper relationship with God, but then go on with your life. It's another thing to say, I want a deeper relationship with God, and I'm gonna do something about it. And the something that you can do is his word. Read it. Get to know him. Pray about every single circumstance of your life. Put it in his hands. Seek after him. That's what David would encourage us to do, I think. And this psalm is, is evidence of that. So, seek after God. He is the only one who truly satisfies. And that satisfaction is not dependent on our circumstances. It can come at any time. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the example that David gives us. And Lord, uh, will you create a hunger in each one of us, a hunger that can only be satisfied by you? And Lord, would you give us the, the will to, to seek after that, to um, no matter what circumstance we are in, Lord, help us to to know and understand who you are, to be able to look and see how good you have been to us, to rest in your protection. Lord, help us to give up our desire for vengeance, our desire to make a name for ourselves, to take things into our own hands. Lord, take that from us and, and fill us with a, a peace and a calm that can only come from realizing who you are and from laying every circumstance at your feet. Lord, we pray that we would hunger for you as David did. We ask this in your name. Amen.